Awesome. Welcome to No Bucks Given, the podcast where we have honest conversations about the horse industry. Whether it's dissecting the science behind common myths or discussing complicated social issues, we fight to get to the bottom of what's most important, how best to care for your horse and advocate for them. Today I have on the podcast a friend of mine, Dr. Chuck Arensberg, who is a specialist in performance horses. Chuck, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into veterinary medicine. Absolutely. So I've been practicing for about 20 years. Um, but um, as you're probably well aware, it's a sort of a, a long uh, career start, right? So a big background and in interest in math and science as a little kid and Initially, then it was uh, then biology was a strong interest of mine, and then at that point it was general medicine. It was a question for me was really whether I was going to go through the medical route, the human medical route, or a veterinary route. But um, in college, uh, I started riding. So having grown up in Louisville, Kentucky, never really rode much at all. Um, but then I actually started riding with the Arapahoe Hunt, which is a coyote hunt out in Colorado, um, south of Denver International Airport. And the master was Dr. Marvin Beeman. Um, he was a famous, famous veterinarian, previous uh, president of the AAP. So that was a really fun experience to be exposed, not only to horses, but then also to the veterinary profession. So during college, I moved from a pre-med direction into a pre-vet direction. In general, the most interesting piece of veterinary medicine, specifically horses, was the idea of that they have a job, they have a goal, and that there's a, a team effort. You know, you've got riders and trainers and farriers and vets and myofascial release and acupuncturists <laughs> and chiropractors all working to maximize the capability of the, the horse, the animal. So that's what I really like in being involved in and being a part of. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I've never thought of it before, but I can imagine how collaborative veterinary medicine can be versus maybe more traditional human medicine. And I love that, you know, you're so willing to collaborate with other professionals. You know, I re remember one of the first times I met you, I asked if I could come shadow you and mm. you were super, super welcoming to that. And you're okay. very, very educational to all of your clients mm. and the other people you work with. I think it's important. I mean, I think you, you don't want to uh, mansplain, right? But at the <laughs> same time, an educated client and probably very similar for yourself you're going to be able to have a, a much better dialogue. You know, I think you want your clients to understand why you've chosen something, what the goal is, maybe the backbone or the basis of how a particular procedure works, thought processes that you're going through, and then sort of future next steps. So I sort of like to walk my clients through those. I love to give them options. At the end of the day, um, the client, whether it be the agent, whether it be the owner, the trainer, whoever's responsible, the rider, and those are all sometimes different people, they need to be invested in their animal, and they need to be the end decision makers. So I like to provide options. I really want them to choose what path they want to go down and recognizing that a choice we make on a Monday might be different than a choice we make on a Friday or yeah. a choice that we make for one horse might be different for another horse with the exact same ailment. I like that. And I think that your clients really appreciate that. And I find a little bit of a similarity to myself there. I think that both of us really like to explain and educate our horse owners on what we're doing and why we're making the decisions we're making. And then I think that pairing them with that knowledge and they get to kind of synthesize the daily knowledge that they have of their horse allows everyone to make the best decision possible. And the great thing about it too is it shows them that 
a decision is a decision, but it's very fluid. You know, mm-hmm. we can present them, you know, sometimes I'll have someone ask me like, oh, should I have my horse seen every week or every month or every two months? And I'll explain to them, you know, in a perfect world with a huge budget, you, you would do this. In reality, I think that this will get you pretty far mm-hmm. and do the most bang for your buck. But we can reevaluate every time mm-hmm. and change the plan. And I feel like I've noticed you really have that wonderful relationship with your clients mm-hmm. where they feel comfortable talking to you about what they are and aren't comfortable doing themselves and their budget. You know, I think that that is just so valuable to so many equestrians because it's so expensive and so out of pocket as well. Mm-hmm. And what you can do on one particular farm might be different than the other farm that you go to immediately before, immediately afterwards, even just from a management standpoint, right? That's so true. Who's in the barn? Who's, what's the experience of the groom? What's the experience of the trainer? And again, similarly, you know, we might have a, a similar horse, a similar goal at two different farms, and maybe the turnout situation is totally different, and we have to manage that horse in a different manner. There's no round pen, but maybe they have a walker. Uh, Maybe they have a 40-acre field. Maybe they just have a little turnout and a half acre or something like that. So working within the confines of the the situation, I love what you said earlier. I use that word all the time or that phrase, uh, in a perfect world. A lot of times I start... Right. My list right. of options <laughs> with that. Um, and I think, you know, you bring up another comment there, too, as well, the idea that even if we speak about the perfect world, right. we can always do nothing. Yeah. And you can always – I think it's also important, and we don't talk about this enough, but in human medicine and veterinary medicine, it's very hard to say that something is normal. It is way so too true. easy to say that something is abnormal or outside the, the range of normal. Um, and I think that's where experience comes in for all of our – uh, professions, yes. this idea yes. that you can see a range of normals. I think it's important to be able to tell your client that, hey, this radiographic finding or this uh, finding on palpation you know, in the muscle belly or something like that is normal. So it's too easy to overdiagnose and overtreat. And again, it's okay just to do nothing and do things like rest or back off on training or change training and not jump in with needles and syringes all the time. I really couldn't agree more on, you know, a couple of your different points. I think that a lot of the time, you know, people want to be able to intellectualize and apply rules to life and to horses. And I think especially when it comes to horses and performance, you just cannot apply one rule that blankets and covers all of them. You know, I have some horses who I'll work on once or twice every year and they function perfectly, even though they don't have a custom fitted saddle, you know, they don't have like a a fancy barn that they're at and that horse functions really well and on the other hand I have clients I see every two or three weeks that have you know every possible luxury in their life and that horse struggles physically mm. um, but that horse is still happy to do their job they just need more support and mm. there's nothing wrong with a horse that needs less support and there's also nothing wrong with a horse that might be baseline a little bit more sore and just needs a little bit extra or a horse that baseline doesn't have that issue. I really love what you're saying on both sides. You know, I think that not only is there not a normal when it comes to a horse or a person, you know, I think that I have people a lot of the time I'll see a client for the first time and their horse is sore and, you know, they say like, oh my gosh, like, you know, and very wonderfully concerned clients are saying, oh my gosh, I need to do all this stuff. And I say, you know, it's normal for a horse in six days or five days a week of work to be a little bit sore. They're an athlete. They're working every single day. I know 
know, you know, you're working and riding on your horse every single day and your back probably hurts sometimes. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily doing anything wrong. It just means that they need some support. I think we all know some horses, like what's debilitating for some horses and what some horses you'll never even know is bothering them can be the same thing. There isn't a normal. And I think that it's all about just knowing your horse and having a relationship with them and seeing what keeps them comfortable and happy, whether it's more support or even less work. And, you know, you said, which is so true, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. And sometimes I think that that's the hardest thing for equestrians to do. You know, I think that I've had so many I've had so many vets colleagues like you tell you know, a rider, a trainer, like, turn your horse out and don't look at them for six months. Mm. And I have that friend and I know that they're pulling the horse out and they're staring at them and they're, you know, they're fuming and they keep staring at the horse and they're like, oh my God, like, I just need to do something. So they do, you know, a bunch of therapies that absolutely are probably Mm -hmm. benefiting the horse. But I don't think that in a lot of the case injuries, like that some of the things that are most important are rest mm-hmm. and letting the horse have a break. You know, even if it's not a suspensory tear, I think sometimes I see just really sore horses. You know, I've had a few clients who are just chronically incredibly sore, get a few weeks off and the horse comes back so much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes horses and people just need a break. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've spoken um, at Barnes a couple of times before. I mean, you know, this idea of rest, biochemically and anatomically, it has dramatic um, effects on the body, uh, specifically the musculoskeletal system. Obviously, they're losing fitness usually in rest, but depending on the management, again, and the amount of turnout, how hilly it is, if they're turned out with other horses, you absolutely can keep a horse fairly fit in different situations uh, with rest, but without having that stress of traveling for the lesson or the schooling, without having the stress of being in the barn, without just the stress of that being tacked up and being ridden day in, day out. And absolutely, I mean, at the end of the day, these are athletes. We ask an enormous amount. Um, and when we go back to the, the management, we have to remember that these are herbivores. They are supposed to be eating basically all day long yeah. uh, when you really get down to it. They're prey animals, being that they're herbivores. Again, I'm not by any means a specialist in uh, horse behavior, but just a bare minimum, we remember that we're in a partnership with these animals and we're asking a tremendous amount from them. And supporting them in any of these different uh, modalities is essential for some horses, but some are just rock stars and, yeah. you know, uh, can, they don't need all of the extra uh, attention necessarily. But absolutely, you know, not to get too far away from the rest idea, I think an important component about rest, though, is this idea of seasonality, mm-hmm. this idea that uh, maybe to reach peak performance, we need to go back and look at sort of human physiology and this periodization, especially when we're talking about uh, certainly racing, three-day eventing, things like that, where you're really building a fitness program. Right. Um, similar to cycling or running or cross-country skiing, uh, there is not a linear progression of the training demands um, that human athletes go through. There's periodization, there are rest weeks, and then you build again, and then rest weeks, and you build again. So it's a stair-stepping uh, level of fitness. And I know that equestrians in general get nervous with rest, I think. And uh, uh, there are a lot of demands and a 365-day-a-year show season at the end of the day, which isn't necessarily the best thing for the horse by any means, or for the people for that matter. Yeah. 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 Equestrians deserve a vacation. We do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, 
We were talking about this earlier because I remember, you know, I was talking about I'm getting a young horse um, at some point soon. And my trainer, who I'm planning on working with, does go down to Wellington. Mm. And I, uh, so many people have already asked me, oh, well, you'll be going down to Wellington with her in the winter. And I said, no, Mm. you know, I stand hard and fast. I very much so believe that horses deserve six weeks off in the winter. Mm. And that doesn't mean you can't go down to Wellington or somewhere South for the seasons, but there are very few elite athletes who are humans who work 365 days a year, um, or even just every season. I mean, you know, the football players, the swimmers, all of them get breaks, you know, they all get time off. Um, and I think that not only is it so important mentally to just get a break and get away from your sport, I think it's crucial physically. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid in Iowa, we always gave our horses, the winter's off. It was just Mm. too cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we didn't have nearly the level of veterinary care and we weren't nearly as good riders. Mm. We didn't have good footing, but our horses just did not get injured the way I see a lot of horses out here in Chester County where most people ride, you know, here in the summers and then they go down south for the winters. Mm. And I really do think a lot of these injuries we're seeing are repetitive stress injuries that are accumulating over time and there's no break for them to heal. Absolutely. I mean, certainly in in bone, right? So bone bruising by definition is a great example of a repetitive stress injury. Um, This idea of, uh, and well, in racehorses or again, going back to event horses, this idea that oftentimes people are worried about injuring their animals and don't necessarily train at the same level or intensity in which they're going to race, for instance, or Mm. gallop cross country. And so the heart, the lungs, the tendons, the ligaments, the bone structure of the horse's skeleton is only exposed to, let's say, 85 or 90% of maximal capacity. And that's what they adapt to, right? You, right. you, you push, and the, the body's going to adapt, hopefully, if it's given enough time in between the next uh, strain. But if we're only asking them to be 90%, then once a month we ask them to race a mile and a quarter, or we ask them to gallop for 10 minutes, their bodies truly will just not be able to handle those demands. So it's this idea of building, but then resting, right? And so, you know, literally, as you're probably well aware, the skeleton is repairing itself all the time. And so by training, we're training all those systems. We're training the lungs, training the heart, training muscles, training the skeleton, tendons, ligaments, et cetera. But those other 23 and a half hours, that's time for that horse to recover so that it then can build and become stronger for the next day. So that's on the, the micro side, right? Mm-hmm. But we also talked about this, the macro cycles, this idea of, and I would just argue that it doesn't necessarily need to be winter, but right. it, it could be oh, any time totally right. um, yeah. or even biphasic. Um, right. You know, the eventers I, I really appreciate. And oh, if we go back to fox hunting, for instance, they do something yeah. similar in the middle of the, uh, the summer, the fox hunters just get off and then they start yeah. roading, cubbing, um, as the summer turns into the fall. And a lot of end horses, uh, upper-level horses, take off in the summers as well and take, maybe have a short abbreviated break in the winter. So there's nothing wrong with taking smaller breaks as well, but a long break uh, will absolutely benefit the skeleton 
Absolutely. And I love that you brought that up because I put out six weeks in the winter, but it can look different for everyone. You know, like for example, my heart horse uh, who has since passed is he did very badly with continuous time off. You know, Mm -hmm. he was a horse who needed a job. So in the winter, like back in Iowa, when it was incredibly cold, he had to get around six weeks off or it was kind of intermittent. Like it was like about, you know, December through February was incredibly light because it was just so hit or miss with the weather. But, you know, out here, for example, I might give a horse like three weeks off in the winter when it's really cold. And then in the middle of the summer, like one or two weeks off, 10 days, or, you know, maybe like I've had another client who gave every six weeks her horses a week off, and Mm -hmm. she did very, very well, and her horses did very, very well on that schedule. And again, it goes back to you do know your horse best, so it's very worth experimenting with different things. You know, if taking a full six weeks off just seems way too scary, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially... It is worth noting, you know, some of these older horses that it's get going to be harder and harder to build a top line back yeah. up on, you know, I would understand shying away from a longer period mm-hmm. of rest. But those older horses might be really great candidates for that every six weeks a week off, you know, because they get a break, they get to rest and repair a little bit, but they're not totally losing that fitness either. Absolutely. I mean, human medicine, it's usually, or excuse me, in human athletics, it's uh, usually three to four week cycles. Um, oh, but without taking a whole week off, and this is for endurance sports at least, you would just change. Um, usually the duration of your activities goes down, but actually a lot of times the intensity stays the same. But you're not accumulating that fatigue. Mm-hmm. You're not accumulating the bone damage, uh, muscle damage, things like that. But your actual duration decreases, but the intensity oftentimes stays the same. Now, then you build on top of that an s- extended time of rest at some right. point or a couple of times during the, the year. Absolutely. But, it, I mean, for humans, obviously, the benefit emotionally. Right. Perhaps behaviorally. <laughs> In animals, perhaps we label it behaviorally. Right. Uh, but there's a behavior component as well. Um, general stress, when I mean, we talk about, obviously, the propensity for the ease of horses to develop gastric ulceration. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, directly related to stress. Shipping, showing, training, all of it. These horses internalize tremendously. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's certainly something you should build into uh, your own training system for that particular animal. Absolutely. So you, you've you touched on earlier, you know, and we're drawing a lot of similarities from human to horses, mm-hmm. to, to horse athletics. Um, and I love that you mentioned, you know, seasonality. And uh, what was the word you used? Oh, a periodization. Periodization. Absolutely. Periodization. So, you know, the way I kind of, so feel free to clarify mm. if I'm not understanding mm. right. The way I kind of am interpreting that is like the seasons and the periods in which you work harder leading up to an event and then the rest period and then working harder and leading up to an, another event. And that really brings back something that. I learned from Pony Club and from some really good trainers, but I'm not quite sure everyone has learned Mm. in their life, which is peaking at shows, Mm -hmm. you know, and we kind of touched on this, but I'd like to dig into it a little bit. You know, my understanding has always been you have 
that stair, I love your stair step analogy. Mm. You know, you have periods of ramping up and you have a little period of rest and you ramp up and you have rest and you ramp up and you have rest. And then ideally you give your horse round a week to prepare at least for a competition when it comes to like either scaling down a little bit to allow them to fully rest and recuperate before the really big competition. But I have noticed that it doesn't quite seem like everyone does that. You know, I've noticed that it doesn't seem like the word I've learned is tapering. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like not all sports necessarily taper, you know, they, and tapering means trim the amount of physical exercise they're doing leading up to a big event. Yeah. Like that's an interesting way of describing and and absolutely tapers commonly used, isn't it? And I think what I've seen is that I think along with if you're planning out the course of a year for your animal and your goals and, again, your partnership with that particular horse, I think I would, I would just remind uh, trainers and riders that something's going to go wrong during the year, presumably. Yes, that's so And true. I wonder if some of the problem is that, that we're not trying to jam too much in right before, that we haven't built yeah. in enough of a cushion and that a horse may have missed a gallop because it lost a shoe or it particular schooling was canceled because of weather. And I think it's important that we don't try to jam in that last lesson or that last jump school or one more right. gallop, you know, right before. Because at the same time, we oftentimes see horses starting to lose weight as they yes. get closer to an event. Yes. Uh, signs of gastric ulceration, again, can certainly start to um, show up immediately before a particular event or a horse show. So when scheduling, when looking at this idea of periodization, it's probably important to Give yourself a buffer, right? Um, <laughs> That's great. Understanding yeah. that something's going to happen so that we can allow them to really surf right into a peak. And again, if you're building these weeks and then rest periods and then rest weeks and then rest periods of activity, the body becomes used to that and will actually have some of the best performances after that period of rest. Would I throw the horse in a stall or throw it in a field and ignore it for a week? No. 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 Um, but, <laughs> Just to be clear. Uh, yeah, the taper versus the rest. That wouldn't right. be necessarily a good uh, time to rest. Again, I would uh, – the short format on uh, three-day eventing is a, a good example of this. The right. idea that right. you're keeping the intensity high, right. but the duration – and the number of jump, jumping efforts decreases, right? right? And the length of the gallop is, is decreased. And so um, I see nothing wrong with doing a, a short format, you know, leading up to a, a long format. It's actually perfect yeah. to integrate that into your training as long as they get a little bit of break, yeah. you know, right before. Yeah. Intensity probably isn't, in essence, as damaging as duration, whether it be so racing true. and they're talking about yeah. this this idea of repetitive stress injury that we start our conversation with. Uh, so the endless galloping, endless anything isn't terribly helpful, probably. I really love that you talked about building in a buffer, you mm. know, because it does seem like maybe many of us have the best intention of giving our horses more of a rest period, but then they come out and they're a little bit bad at their bad event. So then you squeeze in more lessons with your trainer and you squeeze in another cross country school. And then suddenly, you know, you didn't give them a break before an event or you didn't even give them a rest period at all throughout the season. And really it seems like part of the theme here overall, when it comes to keeping horses sound, as performance horses is patience, mm. you know, not just 
I'm going to cram as many shows into my schedule as possible so that I can get to the ACs or get to whatever year end event and move up the levels. But maybe thinking about the fact this is hopefully my horse for the next 10 or 20 years. And if I take it a little bit slower and unfortunately maybe do sacrifice a goal or two, but that might in the end actually get me to where I want to be with that horse in the long run, you know, cause I do think that the rationale behind going down South for so many people is year not just year end awards, but qualifying for things. You know, I think that just a micro example, I know a lot of these kids qualifying for young riders. It's incredibly hard to qualify for young riders. If you don't go South for the winter um, next to impossible for a lot of people up here. Um, and so, you know, I wonder like, if I was faced with that decision, and I'm not saying either is right or wrong, but how do you maybe think about, you know, this horse might not hold up to eight months of incredibly hard work. You know, I might really just have to consider this just isn't a feasible goal for this horse. But then do we have the question of, would it be possible to have different kinds of year-end awards um, that or competitions that don't quite require the same qualification process. You know, I even um, had a client who was in the process of qualifying for the Pan Ams in the Olympics, and same thing. She actually flew from Denmark over to Wellington for the season to qualify around the same time as everyone else. And, you know, like, that person is amazing, and I think it's so cool. But at the end of the day, like, it is hard on horses to have goals like that. So you have to kind of evaluate, like, what is and isn't possible for that specific horse. And have some options. I mean, again, oh, the, so yeah, true. yeah, I mean, the idea that, okay, if you have this decision tree or this plan, you know, you map out a calendar with your uh, trainer and your owner and yourself and your maybe your school schedule and all mm-hmm. these different things, recognize that it's, it's unlikely to go exactly as you imagine. Yeah. You've got to build in enough flexibility for yourself and your horse and alternate options, whether it means, you know, you're going to go to Bromont a week or so ago and bad weather, so we're going to go to Great Meadow instead. And so it shouldn't just be a Monday morning decision. The calendar's been out the whole time. So you can map your alternates and your B options and your C options to still get you to your final goal. And you can do that months in advance, I think. Uh, It shouldn't just be reactive. It should be proactive. Expect the unexpected. Expect Mm. a bump in the road uh, type situation. So, you know, you joke about end of the year. I mean, what is the end of the year for horses, right? It's Mm. not like the horses uh, go to Young Riders and stop. They've they keep going, right? And it goes back to our yeah. previous conversation. Yeah. So goal setting is an incredibly important thing in uh, the equestrian world. And you, it's too easy just to slide into a continuum immediately yes. afterwards. So Yeah. But you have another question I wanted to touch base on, if you don't mind. Patience, you would mentioned mm. a little while ago. Yes. One of the ways that I think veterinarians, and uh, I think you'll see this pretty consistently, and soft tissue rehab is a good anecdote for this. This idea that we do these periodic re-ultrasounds anywhere from maybe 45 to 60 days. The thought is basically we have a plan for those uh, those weeks, and we reassess, and we might change our plans. But never would we speed things up. Yes. Those are premeditated speed breaks, yes. meaning that if the tendon, the ligament, uh, et cetera, isn't um, responding appropriately, that's an opportunity to change course slow down, but it's never, we're never going to say, oh, it looks great. 
you know, and kick on even faster than we had initially planned. Meaning that we recognize that a lot of our imaging, it tells us what's been happening, but it's just not sensitive enough, especially in ultrasound, to uh, define a structure's ability to withstand load. Yes. Right? So we know biochemically, uh, bio, uh, et cetera, how long and structurally, how long a, a structure will take to heal. Um, and it might look pretty darn good after six months. Mm. And that's a risk, right? That's the danger mm. that you put that horse, oh, it looks good on ultrasound, put that horse back in training too early, and we end up with a problem. Whereas mm. we knew from the original injury, hey, this is going to be nine months. This is going to be a year. The long game is super important. You talked about the young riders and uh, having a horse for a career. What's interesting there, I just wanted to comment on, is the, a lot of those young rider horses are older horses, aren't they? They are. They probably don't need the same degree of work necessarily, but they are going to have a shortened career, and they might actually require more maintenance yes. to go a certain level than others. And maintenance gets a, a you know a bad rap maybe, um, but recognizing that there are therapies, whether it be massage, whether it be chiropractic work or acupuncture or joint injections or shockwave, whatever the treatments are that a particular horse needs for its ailments, those older horses that are experienced and have been around, they still need a lot of TLC and they need things to basically maximize their, their abilities and, and lengthen their careers. Absolutely. And, you know, to touch on what you mentioned, I love the phrase being proactive about your horse's health versus reactive. Um, But I also think that there's an interesting way to not necessarily do that by just adding all the things, Mm -hmm. you know, like I think the first thing I thought of when you said that is, you know, having, for example, I know a lot of people who have joint injections Mm. on a schedule so that they prevent their horse from getting sore and having all sorts of compensatory Mm. issues. And that might be, I mean, that I almost think is a topic in and with of itself, joint injections and how you go about them. Um, But, you know, I almost thought to myself, well, isn't it in some ways proactive care to plan rest periods and not to continuously harp on rest, but what are some other examples of proactive care that you like mm-hmm. to implement in your practice? I think some of the regenerative therapies, uh, there is yeah. an absolute downside to periodic injections or traditional injections that include corticosteroid treatment. Right. Corticosteroids, the type of steroid that we talk about are the anti-inflammatory steroids, not, not anabolic steroids that would be like bulking animals up, but corticosteroids are a hallmark of uh, joint injections, for instance, in humans and and in animals. We've been doing that for decades, um, uh, well before I started in veterinary medicine. But when we're talking about being proactive and making a plan and making a calendar, by harvesting uh, natural anti-inflammatory compounds from a horse's bloodstream, whether it be IRAP, whether it be PRP, alpha-2 macroglobulin, uh, prostride, all these different uh, things, those are medications that we can safely use, Mm. repeatedly use, and integrate into a training plan, even without risking the thoughts of drug testing, for instance, uh, because they're naturally occurring products and they're naturally occurring anti-inflammatories. And they work in various different manners, of course, and we don't have to get the specifics, but um, there's a way to help manage a horse's problem throughout, rather than at one time point, with an incredibly powerful drug that has all sorts of other secondary downstream effects like the corticosteroids do, we can integrate that type of plan into a, a calendar. 
Absolutely. So, you know, one thing that you might tend to do proactively would be plan some of those regenerative therapies for an elite level athlete. Like, so I'm just kind of thinking, you know, let's say uh, I have a upper level horse who has, we know she's just a little bit ouchy on that right hawk. Mm. You might talk to me about, well, after she gets her however many weeks off this winter or during her however many weeks off this winter before it's incredibly ouchy, incredibly uncomfortable. Why don't we do this series of regenerative therapies to prevent it? And then would you talk to me about, you know, potentially just having that on the schedule once a year, once every six months to do to try to prevent uh, that issue from forming? I think that is a better idea than having uh, the typical conversation. Let me go a different direction would be, I need to inject my horse's hocks every six months. Right. Well, let's take a look. You've been doing that every six months. Does it affect, does it help your horse? Oh, only a little bit. Maybe the diagnosis is incorrect or has changed. And so I wouldn't blindly plan uh, necessarily, oh, it's January 1st and we need to do X, Y, or Z. But I think what we do like to do oftentimes is that uh, with a lot of these regenerative products, we get multiple doses. And so Mm. you can have that frozen and stored and used for the future. And you can use these products in any variety of different synovial structures, for instance. I think it's way safer to use a regenerative product on a schedule, let's say with open air quotes, than a cortico steroid injection by all means. It just gives you so much more flexibility. And recognizing that, again, when you talk about patients, these, I'll call them medications rather than drugs, or these products would in general take longer to work and would in general uh, oftentimes require multiple injections Mm -hmm. rather than just throwing some corticosteroids in the joint, making the short-term symptom go away, and then dealing with the downstream uh, ramifications that we spoke about earlier. Let's say decreased cartilage metabolism and uh, cartilage fibrillation, cartilage thinning, things like that. Without having to worry about that, you can go into that structure numerous times safely, um, as needed, of course, with the diagnosis, and still have something on the shelf to pull out if you need to, if you get jammed, if that horse does get sore and an ankle down the road. So absolutely, I think uh, there's a place for preventative medicine, a huge, huge place. And I think one of the other things we should talk about, and I think you probably do it in your practice as well, is this idea of let's just watch your horse jog. Let's watch (laughs) your horse walk. Let's just assess the animal on a regular basis. It's very difficult, I find, to be called for oh, it's the time for my horse to have his hocks injected. That's an awkward conversation with someone. I would much rather have seen the horse a month ago and know that I'm going to see the horse a month from now. And again, it's just like we were describing earlier, it's okay to say that an x-ray is normal or that the horse is sound, um, if that's indeed the case. It's okay to look at an animal, assess an animal, do flexion tests, uh, examine it, et cetera, and not treat the animal on that day and say, okay, this is what this horse looked like today. This is where you're going. This is what you want to do three months from now. And how are we going to get there? But there's no reason that we need to do everything on that once a year that we see your animal. I would much rather see the horse on a regular basis and get a, uh, how the horse changes throughout the year and throughout the season, a timeline, a more of a video rather than a still picture. 
I like that. So what I'm hearing is that to you, proactive medicine and management of these horses is maybe a little bit less about what we're doing to them and more about our relationship and baseline understanding and diagnostics of them. And I I love that we're thinking about, you know, not just being called out, you know, I don't want to just be called out when your horse's back is so sore, you can't get on them. And you don't want to be just called out when a horse is colicking. I want to see your horse once a month in general, or, you know, however often, you know, I'm, you're comfortable with me coming out. But I tell my clients, I'm not here to just fix a problem. I'm here to be your horse's massage therapist for life, Mm -hmm. you know, ideally, and not because they necessarily are always going to be having problems that I have to get called out to fix and they're never going to get better, but because it's so powerful to have for you and the professionals around your horse to just have a baseline of what your horse is, right? Because, you know, you talking about, you know, you flex a horse when it's feeling good. That means when there is an issue, you can flex the same areas and say, oh, well, that was always like that. That isn't what's bothering them. So it's really interesting to me that your philosophy of proactiveness is just having a really good baseline in relationship mm-hmm. with the animals. Absolutely. I mean, it goes right back to that idea of partnership. And very early in our conversation, we spoke about all the different professionals that are involved. And the idea of communication amongst those, you know, you see things that I don't see, the fair sees things that we don't see, including all those people in those communications. And I, I'm jealous of farriers. Um, <laughs> we haven't mentioned them yet, but there's a good chance that they're going to see your horse every four to six weeks, right? Yeah, it's going to be pretty hard to <laughs> ignore <laughs> your farrier. Yeah, <laughs> even if they're on that break that we described yeah. earlier. So I find that farriers are, are fantastic because they really can see Sometimes downstream effects of other ailments, right, right. that are uh, being that are showing up in the foot, but just because they get to see that animal again and again and again, and they maybe um, aren't describing to the the trainer or the rider what they're doing or their plan or their goal yeah. for that foot or that horse, but oftentimes they are going towards a goal. They're moving a certain way. They're choosing. Uh, again, proactively or consciously maybe be a better word, how they trim, how they shoe that horse, not only for the current situation, but where they want to see that that foot uh, go. Um, so again, it's a, this idea of a, a dynamic process, you know. We talked about the skeleton earlier. That's a dynamic organ. It is turning over. The foot obviously is turning over. Things are changing. It's not good enough to see this horse, oh, it's lame. Today I'm seeing it. I want to see that horse again and again and again, and I'm happy to look at it quickly. Yep, looks great, and move on to the next one. But the time points are super important. I like that. So do you recommend that your clients and um, maybe other equestrians listening to this podcast, do you recommend that they have at least a yearly baseline physical, or do you like even more often? I think a baseline physical at least once a year. Yeah. As far as a quote-unquote, I'll call it a soundness exam, right, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, um, rather than a lameness exam, I would say more like once a season, once a quarter, once something a quarter like that. I would say really minimum. Yeah. Um, and then again, the more we ask of these horses, the more we should expect to have professionals coming out and helping us attain those goals that we're uh, striving for. And so I would say in general, I see horses way more often than once a quarter. Yes, because <laughs> the performance a, horses, <laughs> I can't, I was just, I was uh, thinking about you in my head and I was like, wow, I wonder if I could ever have a horse where I could get away just seeing you once a right, quarter. <laughs> exactly. 
fantastic. I don't, I don't think I'd be so lucky. No. <laughs> um, but that should be, I think that would be sort of a, a decent cadence that would make some sense. The American Association of Equine Practitioners uh, speaks about something called touch points, and this idea that you're you're reaching out to clients or you're seeing clients and seeing horses in, in multiple different ways. And so to sort of steal that phrase or that uh, anecdote, it would be multiple touch points during the year to assess what's normal for that animal and what are weak points, you know, that we can uh, strive to fix. Absolutely. So I'd love to just uh, kind of briefly touch on, you know, your expertise is performance horses, but you really have a varied experience with different kinds of performance horses around here. My understanding is you see event horses, show jumpers, dressage horses, and race horses. Would you mind describing, you know, a little bit about like some different issues that tend to come up with those disciplines, you know, different things or different techniques you maybe implement or uh, do preventatively with them? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So I think what's uh, interesting about uh, background racehorses, for instance, is it's sometimes hard to convince the trainers of this, but the value in seeing the horse again and again and again. And I've always really, really valued that idea. Oftentimes, um, in essence, we'll pull the entire stable out on a Monday and jog it. And that's fantastic. The question for the profession is how to monetize that, how to get your value in essence, or how to to, uh, monetize that value in that time, right? And the veterinary profession in general has had a hard time uh, charging appropriately for professional services rather than uh, medications, for instance. And so that's mm-hmm. a constant constant issue, specifically with the, the equine uh, market. But not to get off in left base, but uh, left field, excuse me. But That would be a great podcast. Oh. <laughs> I, would love, I would love at some point to talk to you about the vet shortage. I oh, think yeah. that would be a great thing to talk to you yeah. about. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. But oh my sorry, no, I don't no, want to no, get absolutely. you distracted. <laughs> yeah, no. I got to go do some more work. There aren't yeah, enough right. vets out there. Um, <laughs> but in general, though, um, I think what's really great, again, is, is – if you're able to see a horse every single week, that's pretty. That would be amazing. That's the perfect. That's life changing. That's the right? like, yeah. That's yeah, the that's perfect. The, world. <laughs> that's the you're a millionaire. You, I'm your full time vet. You know. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, but you asked about different fields or different specialties. Um, certainly, when you're talking about the competition schedule, if a three day event horse goes to a long format and it's galloping six, seven, eight, ten, twelve minutes, jumping. 20, 25, 30 different questions. There's a real value to seeing that horse pretty soon after competition. Yes. Historically, that's basically been like, oh, let's look at those tendons. Let's look at those <laughs> soft tissues. Just to zoom out, I remember, yeah. you know, I was a five-star groom. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that. Um And I remember talking to someone and that person said, you know, essentially after an event of that caliber, you are just treating them like they're a little bit injured. Mm. And I actually thought that that was really smart, not saying that every horse at that level is getting injured, but they basically said no matter what, after a five-star event, that horse in there and to that person in that program, that horse is getting six weeks off. They're getting, mm-hmm. you know, any regenerative medicine they need. They're getting massage. They're getting chiropractic. You know, they're getting everything we can support them with because just an effort of that caliber. Absolutely. No, I would agree completely. You might as well catch something early. You don't exactly. want to give the horse time off and then deal with the problem when it comes back. And right. I think that goes back to that idea of strength and the importance of uh, diagnostics and a diagnosis. We've spoken a lot today about uh, rest, but rest is a treatment 
And that should be considered a conscious decision. So you choose rest as a medical procedure, in essence, or you diagnose rest as a treatment. Oh, I love Um, that. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting way to describe it because it's important. It, It needs to be conscious. And so resting a horse without a diagnosis can come back and bite you right. um, for the trainer, the rider, the, the veterinarian. So sometimes the best time to diagnose things, um, obviously before an event or a, a competition, right. but as you said, if, if they are dehydrated because they shipped and right. they ran cross country, that, that's an ailment that we should right. deal with on that day, on that Monday morning. Why wait until the end of the week when the horse has started to colic because it has an impaction, for instance? But if it's uh, twisted a shoe, we're going to deal with that shoe now. We're not going to wait till the shoe falls off. But I love diagnostic analgesia, meaning the, the act of blocking a horse for mm-hmm. diagnostic purposes, okay. because it really helps to let us know the source of a lameness. But just because we know the source, we still have to get a diagnosis. We can give you a location, but then you that's where imaging comes in, right? Whether it be a CT or an MRI or a PET scan or an ultrasound or an x-ray, a radiograph um, or other treatments or diagnostics, then we can make a plan. And that plan very well may include rest, but to assume that a horse is going to get better, in open air quotes, with rest, sometimes they don't. And sometimes they do need something different. Um, and if you give a horse, let's say, I'm talking more of an extended rest, right? right. If we're talking like three or four months off because mm-hmm. of an unknown ailment, mm. um, man, it's it's tough when you have that client come back and the uh, horse has been in training for a week and it's and still sore. Yeah. yeah, no, that's <laughs> And, and you start throwing your hands up and you say, we right. didn't know why it was sore to begin with. Right. Um, so, so, so you would argue that before an extended period of rest, mm-hmm. you would, you know, even possibly like my my quote unquote six weeks off at the end of the season, you would argue maybe at the end of the season it's a good time to do a soundness exam. Absolutely. So that that way you have all that free time before the start of the season to address anything. You know, because for example, like if I'm at the end of my season, even if my horse is sound, but you catch something minor, we can take the next three or four months to do whatever injections, whatever time off, whatever laser, you know, PEMF, whatever, to work on it. Or, God forbid, a surgery. You bring up a great point. You were asking yeah. earlier about different sports. So uh, when I did more uh, thoroughbred racehorse work, uh, by all means, if the horses aren't going south, for instance, there is a great opportunity to deal with issues. Mm. Um, now, rightfully so, there are restrictions on uh, shockwave therapy and mm. intraarticular joint injections right. and other systemic medications. And so that seasonality really plays in here, this idea of periodization of a recuperative phase um, throughout the course of the year and treatments that might be best used during those recuperative efforts, uh, recuperative times. And you mentioned surgery specifically. So uh, the typical situation in racehorses. Uh, we've been, you know, fighting with this swollen ankle for a mm. month now, you know. And, um, we, yeah, we got some x-rays six weeks ago when it was swollen and it was clean then. And the horse just ran this weekend and it's sore. I, I want to give it time off. It's like, well, A, let's block it and make sure yeah. that the ankle is the source of the lameness. Right. Maybe it's that knee. Yeah. And B, okay, we've blocked the ankle. It blocks out. Let's take an updated set of x-rays. Oh, Lo and behold, there's a fragment there. It's November. If you deal with that now, you're going to have the spring season to have a campaign. 
if we just threw that horse out in the field, you've lost all that time and the horse is going to ongo or uh, have more joint damage during that period of time off. Right. And wait a second. So we know statistically that if there's a fragment in this ankle, we should probably take a look at that other ankle, even though it looks normal. And the reason there is that the last thing we want to do is do all this work on the one ankle, <laughs> then give the horse the rehab, bring it back into training, and lo and behold, it's got a bilateral lesion. And so oftentimes in imaging, we use uh, the horse to the fact that it's got a right and left leg to use as a control, right? Yeah. To basically see what is normal, in essence, for that horse. Yeah. Um, what can it tolerate? Uh, it's got a little spur here. It's got an osteophyte here in the front of the ankle, but it doesn't have a fragment. So we don't need to do arthroscopic surgery. But there have been many cases where you'll have a, a swollen ankle. You've looked at it a couple of times radiographically. Block it x-ray it, diagnose it with a problem, look at the other ankle. Oh, there is a small little quiescent um, or let's say inactive fragment over there. The horse is undergoing anesthesia. Might as well take that out. Right. Oh, by the way, it needs a tie back. Well, let's do the tie back. Oh, by the way, it's still a colt. Might as well get it castrated. <laughs> right. Just, so Just clean everything yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, clean it all out. Right? <laughs> Fix its airway, its, uh, yeah. its uh, reproductive system, and its uh, musculoskeletal system. So that's all part of planning. And those are, again, conscious decisions that you want to have with your professionals you know, as a trainer. When to plan that castration, when to plan that timeout or timeout of training. And um, absolutely, I would uh, not recommend by any means just ignoring your horse after a big competition and throwing them in a field. We may right. have that's a great opportunity to really see what we can do to to best get that horse back in uh, fighting shape. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we touched on race horses a bit and we touched on eventers a bit. Is there anything different you see with, you know, the dressage and the show jumping community that you tend to come up more often or mm-hmm. you really like to do for those horses specifically? Mm-hmm. I think every time you look at a horse, and you probably do something similarly, um, you're talking about goals again, which we've spoken right. about a lot about today, but what is their job description? And so mm-hmm. if anything, I would argue probably when we talk about periodization, it's probably most important with event horses yes. uh, because there's such a cardiovascular performance issue and there's a, uh, a whole body training issue. Many jumpers don't need to jump that much. They don't need yeah. to school that much necessarily, but yet they compete more often um, in many uh, senses. So I think to answer your question, keeping their their job description in mind is probably the most important thing. The FEI rules are the same. The, as far as medications, USF rules are the same as far as medications are concerned uh, for those animals. But again, their seasons are different. And then the demands on their bodies are certainly different. So, you know, uh, potentially could make an argument uh, that, you know, perhaps collateral ligament injuries are more common in jumpers uh, because of rollbacks or very similar to polo ponies, uh, spiral fractures in their pasterns or collateral mm-hmm. ligaments because of the tight turning. Dressage horses don't often bow their SDF, their superficial digital flexor tendon. Pretty common in event horses. Hind suspensories are probably incredibly uh, one of the most common things diagnosed in a dr- upper level dressage horse. And so right. what a horse can get away with, in essence, right. uh, that's sort of a bad phrase, but uh, or can tolerate or can compete mm-hmm. with is different in all those disciplines as well. So a That's horse true. that might end a career in one very mm-hmm. well might be able to be uh, managed appropriately in another career. Yeah, I've noticed that. And I've, you know, it's interesting in the jumper world. Uh, you know, it's just a world I've 
very briefly been in because I have a very close uh, childhood friend who's a Grand Prix show jumper. I visit her every year in Wellington. Um, but it is just a different world because they don't overtrain. Or I don't know if overtrain is quite the right word, but they don't pound their horses mm-hmm. on the same things every day quite the way us dressage riders mm-hmm. tend to mm-hmm. do. They do show a huge amount, and they ask a lot of their horses. But I've noticed, um, you know, some of these jumper horses have injuries that are incredibly well managed because to loop back to what you said earlier, it's less about intensity and more about duration. Mm -hmm. You know, the dressage horses, everyone thinks, oh, well, if a horse isn't sound enough to be a jumper, turn it into a dressage horse. Well, I think that that depends on the injury and the horse and your vet, you you know, that sort of diagnostics. But I think that oftentimes dressage horses are expected to work six days a week their entire life, whereas show jumpers get, you know, this very high intensity work much less frequently. And I think some horses and some injuries tolerate that really well. And it's just so interesting. And I think, you know, it's part of what I love so much about, you know, what I do and what you do, you do at such a higher level is, you know, as much as I would like to say, you know, jumpers have this issue, show jumpers have this issue, event riders have this issue. Really horses are individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't like, I can work on a horse and I can probably blindly guess what they do for a living but you know horses have their own set of issues there's not like just one thing that's always going to present itself i think it's interesting you bring up a good point in that um i've always found it uh fascinating that there seems to be when we talk about body types mm-hmm. um you know when we talk about is there a phenotypic uh, characteristics event horses have seemed to have a wider range of type of horse that can compete at the highest levels um, compared to so, jumpers and dressage. Yeah, there's well, a when you talk about yeah. guess a uh, job description. <laughs> uh, it's I would say it's harder to well yeah it's easier yeah. To, to judge a, a, a job description based on body type for jumpers and for dressage than it is for eventing because. I mean, you can have a 1,500-pound uh, draft cross uh, running around, or you could have a, you know, 14-2 pony. Um, yeah. So. My, uh, yeah, my old boss's uh, five-star event horse was a, um, just above a pony. He was, mm-hmm. uh, I want to say he was like 15 hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's so cool, and I, that's one of the things I love about eventing is it's so much about the horse's courage and much less about, you know, Neo, that horse, a lot of people said he shouldn't have been able to do the five-star level, but he did it because he was just the bravest horse. Mm-hmm. I love that about eventing. And I love that about horses. You know, we look at them and we say like, oh, you shouldn't be able to do this. You shouldn't be able to do that. And they turn around and they do it anyway because they want to do it with us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what's so special about this sport. So I think we're kind of getting ready to wrap up, Mm. um, but I always have a final question. Mm. If you could wave a wand and change one thing about the horse industry, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think what I would ask for, basically, (laughs) is to be honest, research money. I think that'd be sort of interesting. Excellent, yeah. So much of veterinary medicine is based on uh, comparative anatomy and give and take with the human medical field. Um, and that's benefited both industries uh, tremendously, right? So human medicine is based on animal models and drug interactions in, in different animals. Um, surgical procedures have been developed in animals. Uh, when we talk about xenotransplantation of, of pig kidneys the, you know, into humans, which is ongoing now uh, for renal disease, the idea of one medicine, 
uh, is a common topic in the past uh, decade or so in veterinary uh, circles, this idea that, in essence, we're all connected, right? Mm -hmm. Human health, animal health, uh, zoonotic disease like COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it, it touches with food safety, it touches every aspect of our lives. And so, but veterinary specific, uh, research, uh, monies would be really, really important. And again, we give monies, uh, quite a bit to the American Association of Equine Practitioners. Um, when I say we, uh, as a profession, we oftentimes give back to, uh, fund research, um, specifically for horses benefit. Um, but it's amazing when industry and uh, horse owners as well donate to specific horse research you know, at universities uh, throughout the country. So I would just ask, I think it's just an just a idea that rather than depending on uh, research that is and drugs, for instance, or medications or techniques that are adapted from other animals, it would be right. great to uh, get more specific uh, funding for equine research. I feel like that could be a whole other topic, mm. you know, that we discuss at some point because I have found, you know, I'm the kind of person who loves to just dive into a research hole whenever I can, you know, and unfortunately research on performance horses does just seem incredibly limited. Um, you know, it, I will frequently look something up and, you know, the research is a study on maybe five horses and that's, you know, that's really hard to base future decisions off of in our field. And I totally agree with you. I think that it would be so wonderful to continue to research horses more and more. Um, is there anything, I'm just curious, is yeah. there anything like you would really love to have researched? Like, do you have a topic kind of sitting on your mind? Um, I think actually, you know, going back to the, the thoroughbred racing uh, standpoint, so uh, basically the early biomarkers for inflammation um, mm. and basically uh, microDNA um, uh, fragments in blood. Uh, to show signs of early cartilage loss, uh, degradation, inflammation, et cetera, uh, increased rates of bone turnover, things like that. So I think relatively non-invasive, taking blood mm -hmm. uh, to look for specific biomarkers of inflammation would be huge because, again, that would be something hopefully that would be inexpensive enough that you'd be able to track, again, through the course of the year and say, wait a second, the horse isn't lame, nothing's shown up yet, but we've seen a precipitous increase in X, Y, or Z uh, biomarker. Um, uh, that would be fantastic. A non-invasive, a relatively non-invasive, repeatable test uh, to say, hey, let's press the brakes. Let's investigate this further. That's super interesting. Yeah, that's that would be incredible. Um, you know, to be able to just collect more and more because right now our per your profession um, is so subjective when it mm. comes to finding lameness a lot of times. I mean, not necessarily once you get to the actual diagnostics of an x-ray, mm. um, but, you know, for example, so much of your job is like watching horses go. Mm. And you've talked to me about, and we'll get into this, you know, I'm definitely going to have mm. you back on, okay. you know, some of your cutting edge technology that you use when it comes to diagnostics, but it's so cool to be able to move things to be even more objective um, in your profession and to be able to, you know, point to perhaps maybe that would prevent more breakdown injuries in those young racehorses. Absolutely. And is there like people listening to this, uh, is there anywhere they could go to donate to AEP? Oh, absolutely. We can get a, a link basically. Great. Um, that's Perfect. probably the easiest thing to do. Um, so we could certainly get that up for you. 
Awesome. Um, we'll link that. Foundation for the horse. Foundation mm-hmm. for the horse. All right. We'll link that in the show notes for Great. anyone who's interested. Wonderful. And Wonderful. if you want people to check you out on social media, mm-hmm. what is your uh, yeah. handles, the, website? Yeah, the practice is Bessemer Equine. And so okay. the website's BessemerEquine.com. Um, and then I'm um, on Instagram, threads, um, and LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming, Chuck. This has been really great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to No Bucks Given. For more graphics, video explanations, and behind-the-scenes bites, give us a follow at No Bucks Given Podcast on Instagram. To watch the video recording of this episode, subscribe to our channel at Freely Board Bodywork on YouTube. This episode was produced by myself and my wonderful co-editor, Allie Watson-Bain. Special thanks to our editor and sound mixer, David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. My mission at Freely Forward Bodywork is to make equine massage accessible to any horse, no matter where you and your horse are in the world. If you're interested in learning more about my online catalog of courses designed to help you bond with your horse through the art of equine massage therapy, please check out the link in the show notes for more information. I'd love to teach you.